the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. My name is Anastasios Adamopoulos, and this week we look at an issue that will become increasingly important for the industry over the next few years. Since the IMO adopted its greenhouse gas strategy in April 2018, all eyes have been on governments meeting in London to craft the policies that will help and force companies to achieve its targets. But over the next couple of years, the decisions coming out of Brussels could have more immediate as well as long-lasting consequences on shipping emissions, global decarbonization measures, and the very way the sector is regulated. The new European Commission has been open about its plan to restrict access to polluting ships to EU ports and to include international shipping in the EU's emissions trading system, the bloc's signature cap-and-trade scheme. The prospect of ETS has always worried the global shipping industry due to fears that it would distort competition, set regional rules for a global sector, put administrative burdens on companies, and destabilize the IMO's progress in implementing its global strategy, which relies on international coordination and cooperation. But the ETS is no longer the only environmental measure shipping faces from Brussels. One person in the EU whose policies could prove to be instrumental for shipping is Jutta Paulus, member of the European Parliament for the Greens and Rapporteur for Maritime Emissions. Although an MEP only since last year's European election, Ms. Paulus published earlier this year her proposal on the revision of the EU Monitoring, Reporting and Verification System, known as MRV. The MRV forces companies whose vessels use EU ports, regardless of their flag, to disclose annual data on aspects like carbon emissions, fuel consumption and efficiency. It affects almost 12,000 vessels and its database is publicly available. While still subject to further scrutiny from Parliament and negotiations with EU governments, Ms. Polis's proposal envisages considerable changes. Aside from also suggesting the inclusion of shipping in the ETS, Ms. Paulus says in her proposal that all ships that are subject to the MRV should reduce their carbon intensity by at least 40% by 2030 compared to 2018. This would not only be a unilateral measure on international shipping, it is also a clear differentiation from the IMO, who has the same target for 2030 but uses 2008 as its baseline. Ms. Paulus also supports the creation of a European Maritime Research Fund, running from 2021 to 2030 to finance the sector's endeavours to decarbonize. At least 30% of the payments shipping companies make to secure emissions allowances under the ETS would go into that fund. Annual membership fees from companies based on their annual emissions are also likely. Industry dismay followed Ms. Paulus's proposal, with major lobbies calling it out as lacking understanding of the business, as damaging to international decarbonization progress, and even as ineffective in curbing emissions. This week, I visited Ms. Paulus at a European Parliament office in Brussels to discuss her proposal, why she thinks EU action is necessary, and what she thinks of industry concerns. I'm sure you've had deliberations with industry. And we, when we talk with industry, they are obviously very concerned about this prospect of ETS for a number of different reasons they cite, which is they don't want what they see as regional measures. They don't want uh, an uneven playing field in what they see as a global industry. Do you have any sympathy for those claims or and what do you respond to them? I mean, the ETS issue is probably the easiest one because we do not do any discrimination. Any mm-hmm. ship calling at EEA ports 
irrespective mm. of the flag state, irrespective of the operating company, irrespective of the cargo, every ship is just treated the same way. Right. All have to report and now also pay for their emissions. And of course, we have a lot of ports around the world, so it's a global industry. We also have a lot of cars around the world. So you could also say, well, Volkswagen is a global company. Why should they be regulated in Germany or in the EU, which we nevertheless right. do? So um, I think the evasion or the carbon leakage risk is pretty small because actually I don't see a ship calling, for example, in Marrakesh or somewhere else outside the European area deloading everything, putting everything on trucks and then coming to, to the EU by truck mm. because this is just way more expensive than paying a relatively small share in the for your emissions. But I mean, Commission has done the, the impact assessment in 2013 when this issue mm. was mm. first discussed and the impact assessment came to the conclusion that putting or setting up a, an ETS for the maritime sector would be the most economic and also um, the most viable measure because it's non-discriminated. You don't have to look at the flag state, mm -hmm. you don't have to look at the operating company, everyone is treated equal. And I don't really see that um, we devaluate our economic area because I tend to believe that, for example, Apple will still want to import iPads into the mm. EU, even though if uh, transport becomes very little bit more expensive. Because mm. the shipping industry themselves have made up this calculation that um, shipping is, of course, the most cost efficient way of transportation. Right. Yeah, that's something so, they say a lot. Yes. So um, if you put this charge on shipping, taking into account the current ETS price, the actual increase in prices would be less than one cent per kilogram, which is mm -hmm. next to nothing if you look at the, the actual prices, even of food. And, you know, I think you laid out some, some of the rationale behind why it wouldn't have the economical impact that some people fear. I think what a lot of people fear that perhaps they're not expressing as much or as directly is they fear a new status quo which is we have a global regulator, which is the IMO, and which you, you obviously mentioned in your report, the targets that the IMO has set. Um, and the concern is that if the EU were to implement something like this and implement the operational targets that you suggest, you know, the 40%, at least 40% cut, compared to 2018, which is a different date from the 2008 that the IMO has, we are effectively also seeing the de facto rule of another regulator on this very important issue. So they're worried about this duality and the fact that we will no longer have one sort of overarching rule maker and that that, you know, will impact the global governance of the sector. What, what, what do you say to that? Because that's something that's more far reaching and perhaps isn't as immediate to see, but it could, you know, it is something that people fear would happen. I can understand this, mm. but if you look at the history of even the MRV regulation, it was only after EU implemented this regulation that IMO um, stopped dragging its feet and setting up the um, data collection system. Mm. So 
unfortunately, the IMO has a track record of trying to not to rush, mm. trying not to be too far-reaching with anything. So basically, I mean, what everyone knows that the IMO is most of the time in the hands of the five big flux states. And the five big flux states who transport more than 50% of the freight mm -hmm. um, have this influence on this committee and um, the people who are sitting there are mostly the registration companies. It's not even the ministers of the flux states. So you have this very curious situation where industry is regulating industry. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, they are not trying to be very ambitious and of course they are right when they say it's the most climate friendly sort of transport but still if we want to get global emissions to zero we have to start someplace mm. and it has been in the experience of the European Parliament also with other regulations so to speak of air quality um, sulfur emissions and all that that IMO started moving after EU did their own thing or threatened to do something. And as we have a climate emergency, we cannot wait for IMO to think of another 10 years what they maybe could do until 2050. And in terms of the IMO specifically, you know, the, obviously back in late 2017, the part, the, the agreement in the EU was effectively, okay, we'll leave shipping temporarily out of this, the ETS, provided there's a global measure by 2023. Um, obviously, you've sped the Commission and the Parliament have sped this up now. Since then, we've had the adoption of the global strategy by the IMO. I'm getting the impression for what you're saying quite clearly that the IMO simply has not done enough and is not moving fast enough. Is that a fair assessment in your eyes? Actually, I mean, what we propose in, in this draft report mm. is not put the maritime sector in the existing ETS, yes. but we leave it open. For the commission, for example, if commission goes ahead and says, okay, we'll do a separate ETS for the maritime sector, then it would be an invitation for IMO, well, why not join this ETS with all the other states on earth? Because then you have a global measure. So we, what we would do in preparing this maritime ETS is preparing a blueprint. Hmm. So ideally, I guess the thinking is, we started in Europe, but it yes. then becomes a global thing. Yes. So, but in terms of, of the progress the IMO has made so far, what, what's your assessment of it? I spent, I spent some hours at the IMO in, mm. in October and actually my impression was that the IMO was more like, well, we have to look at everything very closely mm. and we have to convince everybody before we can do anything. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, we'll never get anywhere if you want to convince the last climate denier to be, so to speak of. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always been the same in climate politics. You have to have some ambitious people stepping forward and then inviting others to follow. Mm -hmm. You will never get anywhere when you wait for the last and latest one. And you will always... Imagine a country like Saudi Arabia. They will never agree to anything which may have a negative effect on the, them selling, mm. further selling oil and gas, of course. So if you wait for consensus between all, 
you'll never get anywhere. Mm-hmm. You so, have to step forward. And I think it's a it's a good thing to show I am out there are ambitious ambitious people out there. They are inviting you to follow, they are inviting you to use these instruments. Just go ahead, give yourself mm-hmm. a push. So you're not worried at all. I'm asking this because it's been brought up quite a bit. Yeah. But you're not worried at all that the EU saying, okay, we are doing this because first of all we can and we want to, we have the willingness and the ability in our own jurisdiction. You're not worried at all that that's that might jeopardize the global momentum agreement. You think it's going to be the opposite. You think it's going to force an acceleration, you know, more aggressive sort of ambition. You don't think what industry people mostly are warning, which is actually this act of bad faith is going to cause the collapse of, of global progress on emissions. Why is it an act of bad faith? Well, on the on the act of bad faith, they see it because they see it as the EU acting unilaterally on something that, first of all, they said they would reconsider in 2023. And second of all, we've agreed to move together as a unit globally. So that's why they, they see it that way. I mean, why are we within the EU, notably, within the EU, mm. not globally, we are within the EU talking about um, raising our ambition for 2030. Yeah. We have agreed on the 40% some years ago. Now we find out, okay, climate scientists are saying mm. we've not probably assessed what's actually happening in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, mm. on Greenland, with our glaciers. I mean, you name it. It's a number of tipping points which is already in reach. So shouldn't you go and raise your ambitions and... Mm. Um, adopt different targets and that's what we're doing Mm, mm. you could also say well why are you doing this unilaterally the u.s are not doing anything even china is not doing anything why is the eu doing Mm. it first of all because it's the right thing to do Mm. and secondly because only with an ambitious target you can really bring forward research and innovation because if everyone knows where he or she has to be in 10 years time then they will start acting. Mm. If it's all very vague and no one really knows, then everyone will keep dragging his or her feet. And of course, I know that originally 23 was the date where maybe we could do something. Yeah, yeah but if you talk, I've, I've talked to, I've been talking to Mr. Ramstorff and Mr. Schoenhuber lately, and they were all very, very worried because I said, on the assessments which we made before Paris, Mm. they are even outdated now. Things are Mm. happening much quicker. And so I think we should not stick to fixed years when we can do something now. Which I think that raises a very interesting point about with new science or new discovery emerging quite frequently on this issue, it brings into question, you know, whatever strategy you lay out for how long is it actually... um, appropriate yes. which is I something mean, you mentioned do you i mean flipping that back to you you know you've laid out specific proposals in in your uh, mrv amendments and including dts do you foresee a situation where actually you know what we get a hold of new information that forces us to come back and change it you know and raise ambition even more is that is that do you think a likely scenario i hope not mm. i hope not but 
You know, I've been working in the hospital for some years um, on quality management, actually, and our doctors always had their plans of how to treat a patient. You know, today we'll do that, tomorrow we'll do that, on the third day when these or those values or fever or whatever has um, developed like this and mm. that, we'll do that. Okay, then the next day the patient develops a fever of 41 degrees. Do they stick to the plan? No, they don't. They do emergency measures. Mm. And that's what we have to do in our really life-threatening situation. I think people have not quite grasped what this climate emergency really means. Um, there has been the study about heat waves possibly impacting all the main areas on earth where crops are being grown today. Mm -hmm. So we had the summer of 2018, which was very, very impressive to people living in Europe. And in my country, Germany, there were millions of um, money given out to farmers who lost a lot of their crop. Well, but we are rich countries, so we could buy our food somewhere mm -hmm. else on earth. But if this kind of um, event affects a lot of areas on Earth at the same time, people will starve, mm. simply. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and with the example of the patient with the fever and whether you change your remedy, the IMO has committed to changing, reconsidering the strategy in 2023. By then, you know, if everything goes as you're planning it, uh, you will have adopted some kind of measure in the EU. Shipping will be in the ETS, whether it's a new one or an existing one. What kind of impact do you think that's going to have in when the decision time comes for the 2023 IMO strategy? Do you, you know, do you think it's going to be a straight up, okay, we already have now a very ambitious, ambitious block in the IMO, so we absolutely have to raise the targets? Or do you think it could change, you know, fundamentally how the strategy looks like? So, you know, it's not just targets now, it includes something else. Have you thought of that? Or are you solely looking on the, focusing on the EU side for the time being? Of course, we always think, when we talk about policy, we always think about, okay, how could this be transposed to other regions, mm -hmm. other countries. Um, it's also a question when you, when, for example, on energy issues, when we talk about hydrogen. I mean, we're not focusing on the EU only, yeah. but we look, how could this decision, if we say we want to make hydrogen a very important energy carrier, what does it mean for, for example, our relationship with the countries from whom we are importing oil and gas, what does it mean for countries which could produce the hydrogen? So, of course, we always have this view of how does it affect mm. others? Because, of course, the relationship to other countries is very important for, uh, for such a large area. Um, I think having a bit of experience to look upon yeah. in 2023 is an asset in itself because you can always make informed decisions when you have a history of which measure did did lead to what so to speak it's always difficult to make policy decisions well you can do any impact assessment you want but it's mm. like with children you only know what it's like when you have one <laughs> <laughs> so the decarbonization fund is is actually quite important could you speak a little bit about as to what 
what the idea is with that and how, you know, in, in your mind it would work. And I would like to tie that in with the criticism that many people have of the ETS, especially for shipping companies, which you, as you probably know, are usually quite small. You know, okay, we have the, the, the behemoths, but they are small companies that are two or three vessels. So there's the whole issue of administrative burden with the carbon trading and, and licenses and how that would work. Could you explain how the fund, what if the idea is with the fund and actually how that ties in with the carbon trading allowances and the revenues and so on and so forth? Yes, I mean, you have been speaking about administrative burden. Mm. And so we, we thought of that because mm. we all also spoke with small ship owners mm. or rather the, um, the association of small yeah. ship owners. And of course, the big shipping companies can take part in all this trading and stuff. But we thought, okay, if you have a small company, you only have two or three or four ships, mm. um, then you can just go ahead, count your emissions, make the sum at the end of the year, and then you surrender the corresponding payments to the Maritime Decarbonization Fund. So you don't have to go to the auctions, you don't have to take part in all the trading. Um, there should be an agency, however it looks like, whether you will have an agency for the whole EU mm. or what, whether it will be part of EMSA's competence. We have not really decided what would be best. I mean, that's the Commission's job actually also in the, in the impact assessment, which they surely will do or in the preparations. But there should be just an agency where people who are, would be overwhelmed with this administrative burden can surrender their payment, payments and have no, no further worries. And the fund itself, I think it's a great opportunity for European ship owners to um, actually enhance their competitiveness. Mm. Because if you, if you become more efficient, for example, of course, you save money on, on the emission trade, of course, yeah. but you also save money on fuel. And if you just hire out your boat to ship operators, you can say, hey, I put in this new turbine. And if you go with a speed of whatever, 18 knots or whatever, across the Mediterranean, we've tried it. You only use so and so much bunker fuel. And before putting in this turbine, you used a lot more. So they have a competitiveness over mm companies which have no inclination of enhancing their um, efficiency and we can actually support them with this fund. That was the, uh, the whole idea behind the fund, supporting those who need support because as you said, the big ones are already acting because it's for them it's also an economical issue. They own their own yeah. ships, the big container ship companies, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. So they say when we do efficiency measures in our ships, we are saving money on every trip. But if you have like a bulk carrier and you just hire it out to different operators, what's your, you don't have an incentive mm, as a ship mm, owner mm. because you don't bear the cost for operation. It's the same issue with um, house owners and people who rent out the flats because the house owner said, well, why should I insulate the house? It's it's um, my tenants who are paying the energy bill. It's the same problem. And how does that apply to non-EU owners? Because obviously there's that question of, okay, you are using this fund, which is going to fund, like you explained, R&D uh, from those revenues. 
how does that apply to owners who are not EU flagged or EU based? Do they still have access to those to those funds? Actually, in my view, it's a measure for the European ports, and it should be a fund for the European industry. But non-EU uh, ships pay into that, though, right? Yes, you also pay taxes um, in countries where you're not situated when you use their goods. For example, if you go to the United States and um, mm. be a tourist there and you buy food or whatever, or you you rent in a hotel, you, you pay mm. taxes to that country without mm. receiving anything. So you basically see it as a tax for using EU ports, effectively, that is meant to power a you, green... You could, yes. You could say it is a tax, although an emission trading system is, of course, something different, mm -hmm. technically mm -hmm. spoken. But yes, that's mm -hmm. in my view, we should really say, OK, this is EU money. So I'm just trying to bring it back. So if you are uh, an EU owner, there is the, obviously that benefit, which is the revenues. But if you're not, it's basically the cost of, first and foremost, saving the, the environment and the planet, second of all, doing business in Europe. Basically, mm -hmm. okay. How has, if if it has at all, how has the industry view changed on all of this, from the first time you you picked up this issue? You know, have you seen any more willingness from some corners that have been traditionally against this whole EU regulation on, on emissions change at all? You know, have they have they come even privately? You know, do you see compromises? Do you see uh, a new realization? Maybe an awakening that. Actually, this is something that we have to do. Has, has it changed at all? Or do you still see what we mostly see in public, which is this is not a good idea at all. Mm. It's going to hurt us um, and stick with the, with the IMO only. It depends, obviously. Mm. Um, it depends on whom you speak to. Mm. I think some of the some of the views which were expressed in favor of, of this regulation were also influenced just by personal worries. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone or a lot of people have children and think about what kind of planet will we leave for our children. Mm. Um, and secondly, the most common argument was, well, we should not do something which only hurts us and not, no one else. We are not um, in favor of paying for everyone else, basically. Mm -hmm. But as the measure is non-discriminative, we are not restricting to EU flag states or EU ship owners or EU ship operators, but just saying, okay, everyone who's calling at these ports is is gonna gonna be contributing. That was basically something where they said, well, that's okay. If everyone is treated the same, then it's not a problem for us. Hmm. So the even playing field. Yes, you know, the non-discrimination that, that, that matters. Level playing field is just the word. I mean, there has been this argument of um, possible carbon leakage yes so yeah. saying well they will just go to st petersburg and unload mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. and all that and i said okay let's wait and see if this really happens because i don't think so because you do a detour you use mm -hmm. more fuel you need more time and um, you have the additional cost of bringing bringing the stuff on trucks to Rotterdam or wherever you originally wanted to go because your customers are sitting there. I mean, I don't see, for example, Russia building up a lot of, I don't know, enough refinery capacity for replacing Rotterdam power. 
Yeah, I mean, that is, I think you mentioned that at the beginning, that's one of those things that the implications of which will become apparent more long term. Yes. You know? Yes. And of course, it depends on the price. When we have a 27, Always. as yeah. like the moment, 27 euro per ton of CO2, no one will will even consider going to St. Petersburg. If it were 270, then maybe. Right. I want to thank you very much for coming on today. And uh, we will be looking very closely at this issue for the next two years. And hopefully we'll be discussing this again soon. Yes. Thank you very much.